Hello, my friends. To bring serious value to you, we are doing the first annual Modern CTO Survey. The survey will be sent out to 70,000 CTOs and C-level technologists. Submit the questions you want answered by your peers by emailing them to joel at moderncto.io. You can ask anything from their budgets to the technology they use. Any question goes. The deadline for submitting your questions is December 12th, 2018. Do not wait. Email them to joel, J-O-E-L, at moderncto.io today. A special shout out to Joe Ulisano, our newest hire at LeaderBits. Joe was an entrepreneur who had a company and he sold it in the marketing space. Then he saw what we were doing with technology leaders and he reached out and today he's now running our sales organization. A fun fact about Joe is he looks like a young Billy Mays. If you want to see for yourself, you can go to leaderbits.io and click on pricing and you'll see his face on the right hand side. Joe, you are talented, sharp, and I am glad to have you on board. LeaderBits is a leadership development program made specifically for technologists. It's the only action-based leadership training for your direct reports. Get better leaders faster at leaderbits.io, or you can email Billy Mays directly. (laughs) You can email Joe directly, joe at leaderbits.io. Now, get excited because... Today we are talking to Sam Babick, the chief software architect at Highland, and we discuss how to break introverted habits, learning through osmosis, and the formula for earning respect. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. What's up, man? Nice. You having a good day? Yeah. Where are you? Where are you out of? Where you got? Why do you guys say I have electricity? I don't know. I don't know. Usually I don't. It's probably because I'm wearing this shirt. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> I gave a talk this morning in Tampa, and we're like an hour away from Tampa, so I gave a talk and then ran straight down here right into the podcast right on time. Oh, nice. What type of poster you got behind you? The core. Have you ever seen that movie? No. Is it good? It's awesome. It's horrible. It's one of the awesome. It's like one of those sci-fi movies that everything's wrong in it, where every single, every single, every single uh, piece of science is bad. There's actually a story behind that one. If you want to ask it later or something, please. No, we. I think now's the now's the moment. Now's the moment. Mm. So yeah, basically, you know, when I was at when I was at Highland, um, you know, when I first started at Highland, maybe a year into it, um, I'm sitting there, and it was we were we were pretty small back then, so we're about like thirty. 500 people now or something like that. I was employee 33 back in 97 and it was probably not even a year into it. And, um, the, uh, the CTO at the time and our, our CEO called me in their office and they said, Hey, how would you like to write a, you know, rewrite our product for the web? And I was like, Hey, why not? Sure. And so I'm like, you know, why? Like, is there a reason, you know? And they're basically like, well, cause we sold it. So I'm like, Oh, all right, that's great. So you sold it. Um, and, and so I'm like, so basically, you know, I was kind of like the, the father of, um, this, this, this kind of rewrite, if you will. So taking us from this like C plus plus, um, application client application written in MFC to, um, you know, kind of to, to the web, I guess. And so we had to give it a name and right around that time, you know, I, I named it the core, right? So the core was like the, the, the foundation, the platform for, you know, what the stuff was going to be built on. And maybe a month or two later, the movie came out. And it had um, Hillary Swank 
And um, oh, I forget the guy's name, but you know, it's just a horrible sci-fi movie, but it came out like after I had named it the core. So I was like, man, they stole, they totally stole my name. Right. And so I was talking to the CFO, Chris Heinlein at the time. And I said, man, I really got to have that poster because it was up at the theater. It was one of those posters that was kind of like wallpapered to the, you know, to the wall. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, I really want that poster because they stole my name. I want to frame it. And so he comes in the next day. He literally went to the theater and paid the guy at the theater to tear down the poster. He had it rolled up sitting on my desk with the stickies on, you know, the sticky tackiness on the back and all. So he basically paid the guy at the theater. You know, our CFO paid the guy at the theater to, you know, rip it down off the wall and give it to me so I could frame it. And incidentally, it's actually my birthday too, March 28th. What? birthday so there's a lot of meaning behind this uh this this movie so and that's the one i'm looking at right now that's the actual one right that's yeah that's the actual movie poster yeah they basically drill down they they basically the 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 core of the earth stops spinning and so all the all the effects that you get when you lose the earth's magnetic field all the bad things and like you know the solar flares start coming in and birds can't navigate and all the all the crazy things that'll happen if you don't have a spinning core and so they build a, you know, a, a vehicle and Hillary Swank and I forget the guy's name and, and they, they get into this vehicle and they drill down to the core to kind of reset the spin. So, and all the science is horrible. Uh, yes. And you've got to love it. Cause didn't you do a, an internship at NASA? I did. Yes, exactly. So, um, I was at NASA for four years, um, right out of high school. I, uh, the, the guidance counselor in high school was basically, uh, I was, there was a valedictorian, a salutatorian. Since I got second place, he gave me a kind consolation prize. And he said, uh, do you want to go work at NASA? And I was like, all right. So he kind of recommended me to work at NASA. So I was at NASA for four years um, while I was uh, going, going through college. So I kind of worked in, I worked in the satellite communications division um, at NASA. And actually, um, I in fact worked on the uh, ACTS satellite, which was the prototype for the low Earth orbit satellites that now run our phones. So really, yeah, the ACTS satellite was basically one of the first satellites that has some of the technology that the modern day satellites have to kind of support, you know, modern telecom. I love it. You know, we had uh, last week on the show, the CTO of NASA. Oh, nice. nice. Yeah. Douglas, Douglas Terrier. He's, he's so bright, man. I, he's just coolest guy. Yeah, no, at NASA, it was a fun time. Uh, it turns out, yeah, as I was graduating, uh, you know, college, I, I didn't really want to work for the government, so it's definitely a cool place to be. But I kind of wanted to get into some private private industries, so that's kind of why I left. Right, pretty much on my uh, my uh, literally the, the last I, I, I was at. I'm trying to think that my last week there, I I came and I um I left lunch on Wednesday, and then I I went and interviewed at Highland during lunch, and they offered me a job on the spot, and I drove back to NASA, and I said I'm quitting. My last day is Friday, and I started the next Monday, so my cycle time was like a couple days on that one. And and you've been there since, it's like twenty years. Yeah, yeah, twenty one, yeah, twenty one plus years now. Yeah, I left NASA. I was at ninety three, ninety seven. I was at NASA, and I I got my electrical engineering degree from Cleveland State, and then uh, ninety seven, July ninety seven, I left NASA and I came to work at Highland. So tell me a little bit about the the progress. I mean, most people have uh you know a career where they're just jumping around right but you've managed to to stay there now i saw also that it's like workplace 100 best places to work and things like that like i want some insight into your in into your process and how things evolved all right well that's fair so i mean yeah being here 20 21 years is you got i got a lot of 
interesting stories and I've seen a lot of evolution. I mean, I, honestly, one of the reasons I came, you know, in the first place was, you know, so while, while I was working at NASA, I, you know, I was at college at Cleveland State and my, my degree is actually electrical engineering and I, I really haven't used the electrical part of my degree ever. <laughs> I guess back, back in the day, everybody told me, you know, engineers make all the money, computer scientists don't make anything. So I kind of broke the mold. I, I, tried, I spent my four years, you know, and I wanted to kind of get my four years and now I actually graduated um, not only my class in electrical engineering, but I had a, I had one of my computer courses with a dude named Cal and um, his brother actually made a Case Western Reserve with our CTO. And he's like, hey, I'm getting this job at Highland Software. You got to go interview at this place. So I'm like, you know, it was right, you know, towards the tail end where we're about to graduate. And um, so Cal, you know, Cal's brother, Syed, roomed with Miguel. So that's kind of how I got the interview. And so I, I go into the interview and you know, the, the, the Packy Highland Jr., the, the CEO, interviewed me. And then Miguel Zubizarreta, the CTO, he came to interview me. He was wearing sweatpants and he had an Indian's T-shirt that was like down to his knees. And I'm like, this is the place I want to work because I, <laughs> I could wear this kind of stuff every day. And, you know, I was just at NASA for four years, too. And I was like, you know, I just want to write some software there. You know, I was probably employee, you know, 33 at the time. Um, you know, obviously it was a, a Cleveland startup. Um, you know, probably, you know, right around that, I guess that the, the first dot com, you know, era kind of bubble, if you will. But, you know, so, you know, ha being a part of a startup in the, in the Cleveland area, I think was cool, um, you know, kind of, you know, just kind of seeing the culture and what, what he was doing there. So I, that's kind of kind of what led me to, um, you know, basically, basically say yes and, and, and hop on over. That's excellent, man. Yeah. I, you look super comfortable. I like the shirt. Yeah. Um, yeah, and like I said, over the over the last twenty, you know, over the last twenty one years, it's it's pretty much, you know, I pretty much dressed like this. I looked younger, but you know, I probably really <laughs> clothes uh, twenty one years ago. So the culture, the culture really hasn't changed really all that much. I mean, we've grown a lot. You know, we've had a lot of acquisitions. We, you know, we we do, you know, sales. You know, everything's grown. But honestly, like the, the the kind of culture and the type of people that we hire for are pretty much, you know, pretty much the same as when I was hired. So that's what I kind of like about it. And, it has been pretty much the same for you know the last 21 years in that respect. And do you currently have a CTO or a CIO or do you sort of operate as that? So yeah, so kind of how we're structured. So up until recently, our, our CTO actually um, retired a few years ago. So we, so the guy that hired me, Miguel Zubizarreta, our CTO at the time, he um, he retired a couple of years ago, and we kind of reorganized. And so you know, over those 21 years, I started out in development, obviously, and I was a programmer. Um, and then I was actually one of the first managers, I guess, because we had a vice president, but I was kind of one of the first managers. And then a couple of years later, we created some associate vice president positions. So I was actually associate vice president for quite some time. And then recently, we kind of reorganized. So when our CTO left, we, we kind of retired the, the title with him, I suppose. And, and his, his replacement, if you will, was um, our, our chief product and strategy officer, Brenda Kirk. And she actually you know grew up at Highland for a while, too. She's been here like 18 years. and she. Um, you know, she came from a sales and strategy background. So um, the, the creation of the chief software architect role underneath a strategy essentially was kind of like the functional arm of, of technology. So I'm kind of functionally the CTO, but, um, you know, I think that the, the, the chief software architect title, it's, it's a VP level position, but it kind of suits me better because I'm not really like a good front person, not a front man, I guess, um, if you will. So that, 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 that CTO kind of front man style um, you know, I kind of like consider myself the shadow government um, and, you know, <laughs> structure and all. So I kind of like, I kind of like, 
living in the living in the shadows and, and making sure that everything that's required to kind of support the technology is there. Um, but yeah, I, I pretty much operate as that kind of functional CTO role. Excellent. How large is the organization? So, so yeah, Highland itself is, uh, I don't even know the number, 3,000 plus, maybe 3,500. Um, R&D, um, so we, we pretty much doubled our size in the last, I want to say, two to three years. We had some, we had two rather large acquisitions in the last couple of years. Um, we've acquired a number of companies in the, in the past, um, I think, going on 10 years now. But in the last two to three years, the acquisitions almost doubled our size. So our R&D organization almost doubled as well. So I think we're somewhere around 1,000 people in R&D. And that includes um, uh, QA and, and, and developers and whatnot, all the different roles that you have in R&D, Scrum Masters. Um, actually, the product owners report up through product management, but the um, Scrum Masters are considered R&D. So they're pretty much 1,000 people in that organization. And so the way that they were organized to go, you know, get a little bit more detail there, I guess. Um, so as part of that, when we reorganized, um, the chiefs are, there's really three, actually four vice president roles. There's a product, man product management vice president. There's VP of engineering. And that's in charge of the actual day-to-day um, -day execution and, and, and creation of the production product. The operations vice president actually is in charge of you know, providing all the supporting infrastructure that's required for the engineering and architecture to kind of operate. And then there's myself. So a lot of the R&D organization reports up through engineering, and all the architects are actually a dotted line to me. So we purposely embedded, um, as part of this reorg, we actually created... Um, a number of new architecture positions. So there's team level architects that operate at the scrum team level. There's principal architects that operate at the program level. We actually implemented as part of this reorg, you know, agile across the entire organization as well as uh, scaled agile framework. So safe, I don't know if you're familiar with the um, scaled agile framework and the term safe. We've implemented that so that the principal architects operate at the program level. And then I actually have four uh, enterprise architects that report directly through me. So that whole architecture organization is kind of a dotted line. So it's kind of, when I say shadow government, it's kind of that glue. They report into their respective teams and programs, but they kind of all align up through architecture. So the architecture is kind of the core of everything. And it's, yeah, that sounds smart. <laughs> yeah. And so, and then you're the lead of those, the, you're the leader of the shadow government. Yeah, man, yes, yeah. <laughs> That way, I got, I'm gonna get in trouble for that, but yeah, yeah, it's kind of how I look at it. I mean, it's really, it's really making sure that, um, you know, because you know, I've been here 21 years, so I've seen a lot of the evolution of the software, right? Earlier, I said, you know, I'm the father of the core, which is the first, you know, the, the first modern, I guess, platform, if you will, for the web. But over time, you know, we, we kind of still, you know, we still have somewhat of a monolithic, you know, back end architecture, so we're, we're currently in a modernization phase right now, and that was in part, you know, kind of a, some of the motivation for some of this reorganization as well. Is to basically take our, um, you know, take our software to the next level using, you know, some more modern day technologies. Essentially, accomplishing a lot of the things that we've been doing, you know, great for the last 21 years, but moving them more into, you know, modern modern day kind of paradigms. And so I think, you know, the architecture is kind of key to that, especially because we're in this this formative phase. We're now kind of rearchitecting a lot of this stuff. One of the tenets of, of our software, though, honestly, is, you know, over the last 21 years, our software is either hosted or on prem. But one of our um, key tenets was you know, we, the, the software was upgradable, you know, point and click configurable and point and click upgradable version over version over version. So you could take uh, a version of on-prem software that was maybe running that's, you know, 12, 13, 14 years ago and apply um, the current version and it will upgrade, you know, all the database tables and the whole monolith and magically up until the current state, right? So that's kind of like the evolution and, and up until, you know, the last 18, 24 months, we're, we're, that's kind of where we're at. 
And now we're moving more towards, you know, microservices and modern day, you know, applications, et cetera. The whole content services, uh, API economy kind of uh, buzzwords. I love the buzzwords. <laughs> but uh, so give me a little context about the service, the value that Highland brings to the world. Well, so so traditionally, we're um, you know we were considered if you if you look at the analysts speak you know Gartner and Forrester and the other analysts you know we're kind of in that uh, enterprise content management space. So there you know there's a lot of consolidation over the years, but essentially you know document you know storage, archive, search, business process management, workflow, customer correspondence management, all those things that basically you do with content, whether it's document you know ingesting content, whether it comes electronically or um, you know via paper. And then, you know, doing something with that content. So whether you're routing the content or providing some kind of analysis on the content and then perhaps out, outputting that content to some kind of format. So, um, you know, picture, you know, uh, an, uh, it's called um, release of information. So a patient wants to request their medical information. Um, you know, our software goes ahead and, and communicates with all the different various systems and takes the, the content that is augmented by um, Highlands products itself and then creates that whole patient record and then delivers that as, you know, print out or as, um, content to somebody else. So essentially that whole end-to-end -end content management, people, if the, if the viewers are familiar with other people like Documentum, OpenText, those are people that were in our space. Um, IBM FileNet, so when IBM bought FileNet, these are all the things that over the last 21 years kind of consolidated out. Um, you know, we're kind of in that um, leader quadrant now with Gartner. So we're, you know, we're up there with, um, you know, Microsoft, OpenText, and, and Highland are really the three leaders right now. But you have people too, like, you know, Box, boxes in there as an emerging technology. So they would be considered in that same space. They're in that same kind of, uh, you know, category as we are. And, and Gartner, um, you know, recently, you know, re-envisioned that enterprise content management moniker, and they've, they've moved it over to content services. And it's essentially, it's the same capabilities, but, you know, with enterprise content management, there was a bigger focus on the, the management and the repository and where content services is focusing on the use cases. So how do you take that content instead of just managing it and letting it kind of sit there? How do you expose that content via, you know, different via APIs and components and different persona based applications so you can actually leverage the content that you have um, in, in those various use cases? And, and you got things like, you know, our, our software applies to, you know, every industry. We literally have customers in, in literally every industry. We, we were big in healthcare now. So healthcare is actually one of our largest verticals, but um, you know, healthcare, insurance, government, um, commercial, construction, basically almost every vertical you can imagine and all the back office functions for those as well. So things like HR, accounts receivable, accounts payable, um, contract, legal. So any, any department you can imagine within any vertical, we, we probably have some customers somewhere. And now with a lot of our recent acquisitions too, you know, our geographies are everywhere. We have offices all over the globe and, you know, customers really all over the globe as well. So we basically touch every industry. Um, government as another one, um, city, state, um, and not so many, not so much federal, but we're getting more in the federal government, but city, city, county, and state governments. So basically every vertical you can imagine. And so when you, as you grew and ended up becoming the leader of the, these architects, like what, what did you, was it, was it difficult for you to learn more of the people skills or you know, the human component of, of working in groups or was it pretty easy? Um, that's a good question. I think, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of a big, I'm a big introvert, but I think, you know, what happens over time is, you know, you kind of learn to, to play that extroverted bit and you kind of, you kind of learn from, you know, all the, all the hands-on and all the courses that they kind of put you through. Um, and, and as you interact more with, with leaders, right. So as I kind of grew through the organization, I, you know, interacted more with, 
some of these executives. And, and being as small as we were, it was kind of nice because you get to interact with some of those executives sooner, right? So like you're talking to VPs when you're 80 person or, you know, it's harder. If you enter a, you know, 5,000 person organization, you're not just, you know, elbow, elbow with the CEO. But back in the day, you were really with, with literally the sea levels are like we your buds, right? And so you kind of learned, you know, it was really great to learn from them, you know, very early on and kind of a lot of that rubbed off, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. And so I think I picked up a lot of that, the people skills from actually working with the executives and the vice presidents really early on, just because it was, it was possible when you're in a startup like that. Yeah. If you do the things that great leaders do, you mimic them, you become one of them, right? It rubs off. So do you, do you have, um, and not to put you on the spot, it just popped up in my head. <laughs> so like now that you're at the top of this large organization, do you have any way that you're helping your younger, you know, ar architects or engineers get closer to, to these people to, so they can benefit from that? Um, so, so yeah, we, I think we have a, a, you know, when we, when we reorganized the department, we created a number of things. So for instance, this whole concept of the, 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 the team architect, the principal architect and the enterprise architect, um, those enterprise architects are essentially kind of vice president class people. So they're architects kind of like, I guess me, if you want to look at it that way. Um, and there's a whole mentorship program that's set up. So even though the architects are reporting into their respective areas, so that they actually, the, the, the team architects report up through R and D managers, the principal architects up through directors, but they actually have that, that same dotted line is, it, is there's a, there's a dotted line hierarchy through the architecture group too. So they're actually, uh, the dev fours are being mentored by, by five, sorry, the, the team architects are also called dev fours. That's why I'm calling them that. Uh -huh. And then they're affected by the principal architects. And then in turn, they're, architect, they're, they're mentored by the enterprise architects. And we put them through a lot of, we actually call that whole group technical leadership. We call it leadership for a reason because we don't just consider them, you know, architects or, you know, programmers that they, they, they go through leadership training as well. That's awesome. And a lot of them, honestly, a lot of them came from, so when we actually introduced the role, a lot of them came out of their other roles. So there, there are some architects that, you know, that, that originally were, you know, programmers that became R&D managers or directors, and in some cases came back out of that into these architect roles. In fact, one of my enterprise architects was one of the uh, associate vice presidents that was along with me for the ride here. He's actually been here one year longer than I have. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, Dan Wilson, he, uh, he was one of the uh, associate vice presidents with me, but he's one of my enterprise architects now. But yeah, how many? So there are there a lot of the original thirty three around? That's funny that you mentioned because I actually did a. I went into our systems and I was curious what my seniority was. I'm like, well, exactly where am I in the seniority chain now? Because there, you know, you, you know, people did retire. There was some attrition, so I'm actually number fourteen um, of those thirty three now. So at least, at least, um, if you do the math, at least nineteen of those people. So weren't there of the original 33, but there's at least 13 people below me or 13 people ahead of me. Not all of them vice presidents that are still here. Wow. That's some, that's a sticky company, man. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Actually, it's funny that you mentioned that our, our, um, our retention rate um, within the company is actually pretty low, but within R and D itself is actually, you know, very low. I mean, I don't know what the, the current numbers are at, but I think, you know, typical numbers for the industry, I don't know, I want to say eight to 10%, maybe closer to 10%. Our retention rates within R and D are are like maybe three four percent. I'm sorry. So your your retention rates like ninety seven percent, and your attrition rates like three percent. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, our retention okay. rate. Our <laughs> the, the inverse. Yeah, the turnover rate is like three four, where normally it should be like eight to ten. You're right. Exactly. Okay. Cool. I was just like. <laughs> uh, yeah. 
it's semantics. I, we we get like turnover, retention, yeah, whatever. It's all this. Basically, it's sticky. People stay. They like what we're doing. And where is your? Where are you located? Like physically, are you still in the same spot? Um, yeah. So that's another interesting question. So um, yeah, I've been I've been from this area my whole life. I grew up in an area called Parma, but um, moved over to where the company was located in Westlake. So we're a suburb of Cleveland. Um, the last couple of years, though, I actually ended up um, buying a house in Florida. So what? I do spend half my time down in Florida now. So I spent about five months down. The last three years I've been, and I fly back and forth during the winter, but I've, I've became an early snowbird, unfortunately. So where, I'm, where I'm, in Florida? Uh, Melbourne Beach on the Ocean Atlantic. Melbourne. You're right by NASA, dude. Come on. I know. Seriously. Exactly. <laughs> you, oh, so did you grow up over there? Is that how you got NASA? No, no, I, I, well, I grew up at, at NASA Lewis Research Center is right by the airport. So that's how we have a NASA in Cleveland. So I was, oh, I was, okay. at, so NASA, now it's NASA Glen, I believe. Um, but yeah, when I, when I, when years ago it was NASA Lewis and they're right next to Cleveland Hopkins airport. So that's kind of was where I spent four of my years. So no, I, I didn't grow up there. I was, I've been a Clevelander my, my whole life, but um, the, the winters, winters have been getting rough. So I basically decided to kind of split my year. Um, down there and you know the, the the whole remote technology you see me on the owl you can tell I, I got some pretty good technology now so it doesn't really affect it um you know too much and again i fly i fly in and out during that time it's a pretty easy flight from orlando yeah i mean i'm like an hour and a half from orlando so uh do you can you see from melbourne can you see the spacex launches like at 1 a.m Actually, yeah, that's a, that's a funny story. So there, there's a there's a bar that I go to um, to pick up. I, so I go usually my, my routine is I work, I work, I'll go to the gym, and then on the way home I'll pick up you know food for my for my wife. And so I'm, it's basically takeout kind of people. And there's a bar on the on the beach called um, Sands Bar. It's also called Bikini Bar. And I'm there one day. I go to the gym. I go to the Bikini Bar, and I'm like, um, you know, I order my food, and there's a bunch of people, and they're all they're all facing north, right? And I'm like, and the, the waitress is like, ah, she's like, oh, it's another, it's another launch, you know, she, cause they're like on the beach right there. They see it constantly. Right. And I'm like, oh, and I like turn and here's this rock, this one of the SpaceX rockets is like, you know, <laughs> and it's already like, you know, it's, it's still very visible, you know, it's got the big smoke trail, but um, it's, it's still far enough away. You know, Cape Canaveral is like, I still want to say from, from that bar, it's probably a, still a good 15, 20 miles, maybe north of me. But all of a sudden, you know, the, the sound wave hits you, right? It's like, oh, yeah. And you see this rocket clear as day. You see the smoke trail, and then all of a sudden, so yeah, everybody's watching this this rocket launch, and I'm just waiting for my shrimp, you know. And I didn't even realize <laughs> realize there's a rocket launch, and I was like, oh duh. And honestly, I hadn't really looked to see if I could see it from my house because I'm a little bit south of there. Um, I'm actually 15 miles south on A1A. It's a, it's a quick it's a quick drive. It's a 50 mile an hour, you know, A1A is 50 miles an hour. Yeah. But um, I haven't actually seen if I can see the rockets from my house. I probably could. That'd be interesting. Yeah, because I, I looked up the launch schedule because, you know, I got my wife and my daughter and we were thinking, you know, maybe go see a launch, but they're all like at 1 and 2 a.m. They're really late. Like there's not a lot of launches that happen uh, in, you know, outside of those hours. Yeah, no, I, and my guess is I could pro I probably would end up seeing it. Like, I mean, Florida's so flat, right? I should be able to see it if I stare up into the sky. So I think it'd probably be, I'd probably be able to see it. I'll have to check on that. So I'm curious, uh, you, you said that you took some like leadership training. That's how you improve for your your leadership uh and then of course your technical stuff you're always having to stay sharp because everything's changing so fast to some of the architects maybe some younger architects what advice would you give them about how you keep sharp um in your in your role um i think 
Honestly, I think one of the best things you could do, um, and and I, I do it to this day, and I almost have to do it at this point, is you know I don't I haven't programmed for a while to be honest. Um, ever since we re reorganized, but I still I, I learn a lot through osmosis, and that what that really means is you've got to basically be around smart people and have <laughs> yeah people and and ask questions and and learn from them, right? I think I think once you once you get to a certain point, so I think like kind of early in your career. You know, you, you take the technical things, right? But essentially, after you know three to five years of doing what you're doing, you're you know, if you take the whole ten thousand hours, makes you a master, right? You're if, if you think about forty hour work weeks, twenty thousand, you know, two thousand eighty hours a week, uh, a year, you're pretty much a master after five years. And at that point, you know, you could really start, um, you know, interfacing with other people, and, and you can start learning through that osmosis. Because once you're a master at something, um, another piece of trivia: I'm actually a third degree black belt as well. Nice. And so, I mean, once, once you, I guess what I'm saying is once, once you know one martial art and you're a black belt in it and you go to another studio and you want to learn a different style, it, it comes really easy, right? It's the same thing here. So you've learned, you've learned the basics and, and you're kind of now almost mastered. So you're three to five years in and you can, you could actually continue learning. Obviously you're still going to, you know, program and you're going to read books and you're going to, you know, attend conferences and stuff. But, but I think you can't really replace just talking to other people. And, and lear again, learning via that osmosis, because that's how you get all those other experiences. Like I, I learn, I learn every day from my principal architects and even my team level architects, right? I can't, I can't program this stuff and I don't see every technology that there is, but the second there's a term I, I don't know, or some new concept, you know, I, I, I talk with them for 15, 20 minutes and, and obviously I'm no expert on that concept, but I, I could, I'm pretty good at, you know, pretty conversational with it after that point, because, you know, these things are all in the same, you know, category of, of my knowledge, right? So. Yeah, well, you point out a good point. You remember the experiences you have. Like, you could read a lot of articles and textbooks. You could read a lot of stuff, but when you actually engage with that human and you have that conversation about the thing you heard but you didn't know, that memory will stick with you for a long time, and it's much more usable. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's awesome. So, uh, the the team that you have, you uh, like, what opportunities do you have to speak regularly? Do you do like a morning uh, meeting? Do you do a weekly meeting? How do you engage with your team regularly? Um, so, depart departmentally, we have so there's there's a number number of different uh, teams. So again, it, it kind of in my role, I kind of cross cut as well. So when it comes to the architects themselves, you know, we've just instituted some some workshops. So just the other day, we had a, a full day long workshop where we actually did some education up front, and then we spent some of the uh, afternoon kind of looking at their respective um, areas and their products and kind of designing like technical roadmaps for those. So there's some training involved there. So we, we had a number of uh, points there, and there's going to be a number of workshops, you know, going on in the future as well. Um, we do have all-hands meetings. So we have all-hands uh, R&D meetings um, typically once a month. And then um, there's other leadership meetings that occur, you know, probably, you know, every quarter, or every other month. So there's there's a number of opportunities to, to talk to different levels. So I, I work a lot with the directors as well. So, you know, to make sure that, you know, since the, 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 the principal architects report up to them and they kind of own the actual execution of the programs, um, there's actual leadership meetings where I, you know, have an opportunity to kind of work through the directors to kind of have them um, be that, um, you know, extra eyes and ears over the, the whole architecture group to kind of help me out with that. So there's, there's definitely a number of different leadership things. There's all hands meetings. There's these architectural workshops. Um, we have these tech leadership forums where there's just the time, you know, that that's kind of more informal where the architects kind of get together and um, sometimes they'll have me talk if, you know, if there's a topic they want me to talk about, but usually I kind of just stay out of their way and I just say hi and they kind of do an information exchange amongst themselves there. So I think there's, there's all those kind of things uh, going on. 
Uh, we also have heavy participants. A lot of them, um, a lot of them are um, volunteers with, we do a lot of community outreach. So seventh grade through 12th grade, we do a lot of, um, you know, field trips and shadowing, but we also hold um, tech camps, you know, programming boot camps, tech camps, and other events actually here at Highland for seventh through 12th graders. And a lot of those people actually are volunteers uh, there as well. That's amazing. You have a, you have a very living organization. There's a lot happening, like a lot of engagement, a lot of culture, a lot of people getting together and sharing. That's really, that's really good. Yeah, actually, that was that one of the things that one of the boards. I'm on, I'm on a local board as well. A lot of a lot of the, some of this engagement that we kind of instituted here at Highland. There's a, a local um, board called Wright, and they're really concerned with a, attracting, a preparing, and placing students within Northeast Ohio. So this it's kind of a it's not even really a nonprofit. It's it's more of a a, a gathering of of local executives. So we have a CIOs and CEOs from some of the local companies um, like Eaton and Sherwin Williams and Cleveland Clinic. And then we actually have universities on our board as well. And like, again, the whole, the whole purpose of that, um, that, that organization is to really ensure, and that this is kind of how this bled into, because um, I actually, the, the, the whole community outreach piece kind of grew out of my organizational structure a number of years ago. And it was kind of inspired by my participation on that board. So I got kind of, that kind of connects the dots here. So a lot of the community outreach stuff that we were doing, at least on the technical side, in terms of these camps and whatnot, was somewhat inspired by uh, participation on this local board, whose sole purpose was to, um, you know, again, attract, prepare, and place uh, students within the region, because we found that if you can get to the students earlier, you know, 7th, 8th, ninth, 10th, and, and they, they create a connection with you, it's okay if they go to, you know, university or college somewhere else, they'll want to come back, right? And, 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 and we're not the West Coast, right? I mean, just be honest, we're <laughs> Cleveland. And so yeah. you got to do whatever it takes to kind of uh, create that stickiness you know, if you will, with, with the, the local, you know, people. That's really smart. I, I like your, you, you're, um, you're one of the companies that I would, I'd like to come like learn from. <laughs> at, at, at open invite whenever you like. Yeah. The way you've been able to structure your leadership with engineers, because look, I, I started out in engineering uh, and then moved into team lead and, and it wasn't, it wasn't an easy transition for me to go from being so quiet and detailed and analytical to, to, working with people. <laughs> and so it wasn't super easy. And, and, and so, you know, my, my thing in life now is, is, you know, helping people through the po podcast content and the books and everything, uh, just by them being able to hear like exactly what you were talking about earlier, when, when they can on their drive in, listen to you talk about it, that helps them. They'll take something from that. Right. And so yeah. you have successfully done this at scale for engineers and, uh, it'd totally be cool to talk to whoever is putting together you know, you and whoever's putting together that stuff to see what you've learned from like the trial and, and failure of, of, you know, mentoring up these engineers. Well, and the, the other cool thing I think about this is that, um, you know, I said, we did a lot of acquisitions. When we do the acquisitions, we actually, we actually, um, you know, in addition to other, all the other reasons one would do an acquisition, we actually do look for cultural fit. And so even these last two acquisitions that I described, um, you know, they were very well aligned from a people perspective, you know, similar attitudes, similar culture. Um, and I, I think, you know, we, we actually leverage a lot of, you know, what we learned from them to in, in some of these areas. So for example, one of the acquisitions that we had done, um, they had a much more formal architecture group than we did. And so one of my, one of my enterprise architects is actually one of the people from that acquisition. And, uh, and she actually helped kind of grow some of this stuff. 
because they actually had a more formal architect. So we leverage, you know, we don't just say, hey, you know, we're going to gobble up these companies or whatever. You know, we, we leverage the, you know, kind of their expertise in these areas. They definitely were, uh, had a much more, um, you know, mature architectural organization. So, and I, and I already spun up the whole architecture group and I'm like, hey, this is interesting. You know, let me, tell me what you know, you know, like, let me learn from you. And so like, I learned, we learned a lot from, from that acquisition on the architecture side. And, you know, one of the other organizations that we had had a very strong product management function, for example. So there was a lot of things we learned from them on the product management side um, as well. But I think and that can only happen when you when you acquire people that have a cultural fit. Mm -hmm. Right. When they're more like you, that's that's kind of how um, you can you can learn those things more readily. So in the acquisitions, learning and, and bringing these people together, um, you you, of course, you identify different strengths within different organizations, but the act of pulling them together at different times, is that all a pretty smooth process? Um, I think, yeah, I think we've, we've gotten better at it over time. I don't know the exact number we've done. Um, I don't know, 12, 13, 14 over the last number of years, um, which made the last, you know, they, they get smoother as they go. Um, the, the one acquisition of um, one of, one of our, um, you know, former, um, way back in the day, they were kind of our, our, our nemeses, which was which is interesting. This was like 15, you know, 20 years ago. But now, they're, you know, they're, we're best friends now, obviously. But, um, we, you know, that was the, the largest one. I think that one might have been, we were, I want to say, I don't know, at the time, we might have been 1,500 employees. And then we brought in about 800. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that one actually, that one actually went fairly smoothly. We had a number under our belt. That happened to be the largest one, though. Um, but that one actually did, did go smoothly. We brought, brought on a number of geographies, a number of products, but I think because we've done it enough times. Um, and because, like I said, there is that kind of cultural fit, it, it was kind of eerie um, in some ways when we were, you know, once, you know, because during an acquisition, you, you, there's some things that you can't see, right? You're kind of like oh, yeah. buying a house and not being able to see inside the house, right? But then afterwards, you learn a lot more about it and you're like, and you're kind of amazed that there, there are a lot of the trajectory that some of these guys were on are the same trajectory that we were on as well, which actually speaks a lot to, you know, kind of their thought processes and, and, and you know, you know, somewhat validating, I guess, too. So, yeah. So when you mentioned a lot about culture engineers, we have a lot of engineers, both uh, team members and leaders that listen. So could you describe the the profile of like an ideal cultural fit of a of an engineer or product manager or just in general? Well, I think I mean I think that the ideal profile is um, I guess first and foremost you know the attitude and the ability to kind of work with others. So you 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 know like you could there's certain things you can train, but you can't train attitude. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people on your show have at some point or another said that, but I think that the attitude and the ability to collaborate are two of the most important things. Um, you know, just general, like, you know, skills, you know, can be trained or retrained, but I think, I think definitely the ability for people to um, work through problems, I guess, right. Because there's going to be, there's going to be friction. If you, if you think about, um, you know, an agile team or, or, or an organization, right. You have, um, you know, at the, at the, at the agile level, you've got scrum masters and you've got product owners and you've got your developers, you have architects, there's all these different roles, right? And, you know, when you're a startup and when you're smaller, you know, you might not have all those roles necessarily because you're wearing many hats, but as you start growing, you break out into these roles. So you have individual product owners, scrum masters, developers, and they're wearing their own hats. And you're going to, at some point you're going to have, you know, some kind of friction. And it, it comes down to the employee's ability to kind of 
work through that friction with each other because it's going to happen, right? And even if you go one level up, if you think about it in terms of uh, the scaled agile framework and, and save how we do it here at Highland, you know, we have directors and their counterparts would be like product managers, right? And so you have all these different roles that have to interact to actually kind of, you know, create this product. And, you know, and, and there's going to be, you know, and, you know, and actually the architects too at that, that program level, I guess. Um, and there's going to be, you know, times when they don't agree, right? Especially oh, yeah. life, <laughs> you know, especially technical people, right? And everybody's got opinions. Um, and even amongst the architects themselves, right? I think one of the biggest challenges that they, a lot of times they can work through. So when, once you get past those um, kind of people leadership things, they're still, you know, it's still highly opinionated role, right? Um, and you're now not no longer an individual contributor. You're actually designing architectures that are used by the masses, right? But then if you have, if you're collaborating with other architects, they're going to have, you know, varied opinions. So it comes down to their ability to actually, you know, accept feedback and input from others and then synthesize that into something. And, 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 and at times that requires compromise, right? Because there's no right answer. This is programming, right? There's 10 million, there's an infinite number of ways to program something and architect something. There's never, there's no true right answer. And that's what I think a lot of people have to recognize too, is that, you know, people that are trying to dig in their heels, um, you know, for, for, you know, philosophically or, you know, for, for a certain thing they believe in, um, you know, there's never a right answer. It comes down to compromise. I like it. And that ultimately traces back to at like core, there's a like core attitude. And then there's, you know, uh, you could, you could train a little bit as far as like people have good core attitude, but they tend to dig in their heels. You know, you work a little bit on that, yeah. but yeah, I, I know what you mean. Like it's, it's hard to describe, but when you're sitting there engaging with the human, with the person themselves, you can tell their general like consensus, like their general attitude and style. So yeah, that's a real good one. Actually, I think you're the first person who's ever said the words, you can't train attitude. I'm gonna make a little quote thing from that. Oh, sweet. I love it. You, you win that award, Sam. Thank you. <laughs> Excellent. So, all right. You have you created core you've got massive amounts of respect there as a leader do you personally mentor any of the other leaders there well yeah so in addition to in addition to the um you know the enterprise architects that report directly to me um i have one-on-ones with some of the not all of them there's 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 about 30 principal architects but there are there are a number of uh principal architects that i mentor directly and then I actually have one-on-ones with some of the directors and even a few of the R&D managers. Um, in some of those cases, it's, you know, it's by request, but, um, you know, uh, right now, I, I guess I still have the bandwidth where I'm not saying no to some people. I guess eventually if, you know, 200 people wanted one-on-ones with me, there's not enough time. But um, you know, I've, I've been asked, you know, for, for one-on-ones with people to, to kind of be their mentor and I, and, I, and I haven't said no yet. That's awesome. Dude, you're, cha- you're changing the world. You're changing their lives. Yeah, I'm good. <laughs> It feels good, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, like, like I said, I think a lot of what I learned, and I said this earlier, I, I learned a ton from, you know, starting early on and being able to interact with some of the, the leaders that made Highland what it is. And I, I, I just a lot of, a lot of osmosis, right? I learned a lot of, a lot from osmosis. I, actually, I got a funny story. Like these things stick with you, right? So Packy, Packy Jr. I have a lot of, you know, not, I have a lot of other funny stories I probably can't tell about a Packy Jr. <laughs> He's retired. He was the founder and CEO, but he, he's retired since. But I remember, so me and Dan, um, the, the Dan Wilson, the, my, one of my enterprise architects, the guy that he actually predates me, um, we're in an elevator and in our old building and, and Packy goes, this is, mind you, this is like 
1998 at this point, because it's still in our first building. And Packy goes, is there anything you guys need? And Dan Wilson says, we want 21-inch monitors. Now, by the way, flat screen, sorry. We want 21-inch flat screens. Now, nowadays, you wouldn't, no, nobody thinks, oh, that's interesting, right? This is 1998. A 21-inch flat screen was $6,000. Yeah. In the elevator, Packy, just like that, Packy's like, you got it, right? He didn't know how much it cost, honestly. So Dan's go, we want 21 <laughs> flat screens. Packy's like, yes. We get off the elevator. He literally, within a couple of days, we've got 21 inches, 21 inch flat screens. And he's like, he's like, man, I wish I would have known how much these cost. <laughs> Anyways, there were six, there were six grand a pop. And we each got, we were, we had the first 21 inch, you know, flat screen monitors. And they were like, I said, they were like six grand and, and Packy did it. Like he kept his word. He asked us what we needed and we told him and he, you know, and then that, that, that sticks with you. Like, I mean, I, I, you know, you can't, you can't not take that with you, you know? No, that you make, you, you bring up a very valid point. The way you create trust and respect is by say, you're going to do something and then you follow through and you do it. And yeah, that's a, that's a great example of that. Yeah. Awesome, man. We, we did it. You and I together, we made a podcast. Awesome. How do you feel? This, this is great. This is actually my my first podcast. I wasn't sure what to expect. This is actually my first podcast, if you if you can imagine. No, in honor of you, we were listening to some metal music prior to the podcast starting. It was a lot of fun. Oh, wonderful. That's great. I love it. Excellent. So I'll, I'll reach out to you and next time I'm in the area up there. Maybe you happen to be there that part of the year or uh, maybe I go, if I'm going to see a rocket launch, I'll text you just to see if you happen. Sometimes the universe lines up like that, man. It's really weird. And uh, if we have the chance to meet, that'd be awesome. Yeah, no, hey, no problem. I'm actually, I'm honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm heading there soon. I'll be there for, you know, December through May. So if, if somehow you end up in that area, seriously, just text me. I'm, I'm working from home, so I got nothing better to do. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, man. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to help, please take a moment right now to open up the iTunes app and leave a review of the podcast. If you take a screenshot of the review and text it or email it to a friend who needs to listen to the podcast and then CC me, joel at moderncto.io. If you CC me on the email, I'll send you a copy of the Modern CTO book or give you a shout out on the podcast, whichever you prefer. We're trying to get listed on the top 100 for iTunes and I need your help in order to do this.